Thanks for being here. Thanks for your commitment to worship with your spiritual family this morning. If you're a guest, thanks for giving us a chance to minister to you. I want to welcome everyone who's joining us online. We're thrilled to have you as a part of our service wherever you are. If you've got a Bible this morning, I want you to take it and go with me to the Gospel of Matthew. And when you get to the Gospel of Matthew, I want you to find the 19th chapter. And we're going to continue this weekend our verse-by-verse journey through this gospel. This is a study that we began in November of 2016. So we've been doing this. We've been going through Matthew for a while. Now, as most of you know, because it's such a long book, 28 chapters, I have divided the gospel of Matthew up into different sections. And sometimes uh, throughout this journey, as we completed a section, I took a break and talked about something else for two, three, four weeks. Uh, And uh, I did that just to try to provide some variety. But when we open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 19 this morning, we are in the middle of our newest section of Matthew's gospel. It's Matthew chapters 18, 19, and 20, and I'm calling that section growing deeper because here's what we see in those three chapters. Jesus is teaching His disciples what it looks like to grow deeper in their faith and in their calling. And we're going to see a really interesting aspect of that today as Jesus answers a question about marriage and divorce, which might sound odd, but marriage and divorce was a huge issue in Jesus' day. In fact, it was probably the defining social issue of Jesus' day, like some social issues are defining the current day that we live in. And so, I think that you'll find this interesting this morning. Before we read the Scripture together like we always do, I want to say a couple of things. Uh, There are two temptations that come along when it comes to teaching the Bible. The first one is to say more than the Bible says, and the second one is to say less than the Bible says. The subject of marriage and divorce and I'll add remarriage, is a big deal to God. You don't have to be a theologian to know that God is not crazy about divorce. He makes it really clear in the Bible. At the same time, you don't have to be a sociologist to know that divorce is a huge issue in the culture that we live in today. I have firsthand personal experience with divorce in that both of my parents who are gone now, they both died in 2015, both of them were married and divorced three times. I've seen this up close and personal. As a pastor, I can't even begin to guess the number of people that I have counseled with over the years related to marriage and divorce. This is a subject that I'm really, really familiar with. And so I want to do three things this morning. First, I want to teach this passage with clarity. When you leave today, I want you to leave knowing what Jesus has to say about marriage and divorce and remarriage. I want you to understand that. I don't want you just to leave understanding what he has to say, but I want you to leave understanding the heart of Jesus as he says what he does. The second thing I want to do is I want to preach this and teach this passage with authority because I believe the Bible deserves to be presented that way. The Bible is not an ordinary book. It is the revelation of God to man. It's God telling us how He wants us to live our lives. It has to be taught with a certain level of authority. It's not a take-it-or-leave-it kind of a thing. And the third thing I want to do is I want to teach this passage with humility because at the end of the day, Here's what's happening when we gather together for worship. 
What happens is there's one sinner talking to a bunch of other sinners. How many of you know that's true? The Bible says that we're all sinners. And while we may not have stumbled in the same area as someone else, that doesn't mean that we haven't stumbled. And I want to have a humble heart as I share these truths from the scriptures about marriage and divorce and remarriage, because at the end of the day, every one of us are completely dependent upon the grace of God just to survive our lives in this world. Having said that, if you've got your Bibles open to Matthew 19, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of the Scripture. If you're a guest, we do this every week. We make the public reading of Scripture a part of our service, a significant part of our service, and because we have such respect for God's Word, we stand together when we do it. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 12. You follow along today. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way, others were made that way by men, and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. All right, there it is. You can be seated as always every week. We always ask for God's blessing on the reading and the hearing of His Word. We don't have a lot of time this morning, so let's dive right in. Let's break this passage down in a logical way. If you're someone who likes to take notes, right next to number one in your handout, these words, Jesus' Word on Marriage. Jesus' Word on Marriage. Our text really begins in verse 3 with some consistent words. It says, some Pharisees came to Him to test Him, consistent because they did this all the time. You would think at some point these religious leaders who hated Jesus, who had already chosen to reject Jesus and weren't going to change their minds regardless of anything Jesus ever said or did, you would think that at some point they would have realized that their efforts to trick Him with what they thought was a clever question was not going to work. But they tried continually over and over again, and this time it was with a question about divorce. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And Jesus, who sees right through them because He sees right through all of us, gives his response in verse 4. Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, they are, so they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Let me tell you what Jesus is doing. He is literally, listen to me, friends, he is literally going all the way back to the beginning Because what he's doing is he's going all the way back to the book of Genesis, chapter 2, right after God created Adam and Eve, and he's directly quoting in the first part of his response, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then he adds in his own words at the end when he says, so they are no longer two but one, therefore what God has joined together, let man not separate. 
And so let me tell you that what Jesus is doing in a very practical way is he's giving us his word on marriage. He's telling us how he feels about marriage. And he tells us three specific things. You should write these down in your notes. Number one, he says marriage involves absolute commitment. And I see that from the first part of verse 5, which is also the first part of Genesis 2.24, when he says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. And let's understand together this morning that even though he addresses this to men, the picture of leaving applies in the marriage relationship to both men and women. Because when two people get married, each one is to leave their home, each one is to leave their old life behind in the sense that they let go of their previous relational priorities so they can make a full and complete commitment to each other. Now, that doesn't mean that when you get married, you stop loving your father and your mother. It means when you get married, you have a new earthly relational priority, a new earthly relational priority priority. In fact, let me make this really clear. I've said this to you before. I'll say it again. When a person gets married, they are saying to their spouse, you are now my first earthly relationship priority. You're my first earthly priority. And that means you close the door to all other possibilities. I'm telling you, friends, one of the main reasons for unhappiness in marriage happens when your spouse, for whatever reason, stops being your first earthly relational priority, your first earthly priority. When you don't have this understanding of what it means to leave father and mother behind, when you let something like money or work or personal pursuits, or you even let your children become a higher earthly priority for you than your spouse, then your marriage is going to suffer. Your marriage is going to suffer. I know that's hard to hear sometimes with regard to the children, but it's true. I love my children. I have two. I love my children as much as it's humanly possible to love someone. There's not a single thing that I wouldn't do for either one of my children. I fully understood when they were born, I fully understood the stewardship of their lives that God was entrusting to me for a small window of time. But at the end of the day, here's what I believe foundationally. I began with my wife, and I'm going to end with my wife. And so that means that she is first among equals when it comes to my earthly relational priorities. You follow what I'm saying? She is first among equals because I cannot love my children any more than I love them today. Some parents today make the mistake of idolizing their children. And while that might seem like a right thing to do in the moment, that might even seem like the healthy thing to do in the moment, that is not healthy at the end of the day for anyone. When you're married, your spouse is your first earthly relational priority. He or she is number one. The second thing Jesus is telling us about marriage, not only does it require or involve absolute commitment, marriage involves absolute unity. Write that down somewhere in your notes. And in Matthew, we see this in Matthew 19, 5, where he says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. We just talked about that. And then he says, and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Marriage involves absolute unity. Now, I want you to understand that Jesus is talking about two kinds of unity here, two types of unity. He's talking about physical unity. That's clearly understood from the verse but he's also talking about spiritual unity. He's talking about physical unity, and he's talking about spiritual unity. Let's talk about that physical unity for a moment, and just so we're clear, let's talk about sex for just a moment. 
A marriage based solely on sex could never survive the tough times that life inevitably brings. At the same time, when you're married and there's no sexual relationship in your marriage, there's no sexual relationship between a husband and a wife, a powerful part of God's plan and a powerful part of God's provision for marriage and for your life in marriage is missing. Marriage is much more than a sexual relationship. Anybody who's married can tell you that. But the sexual relationship is critical in the marriage relationship. And so, husbands and wives, you cannot neglect that part of your marriage. The Apostle Paul writes about this very specifically in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You don't have to turn there, but you might want to write down 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. Listen to it as I read it this morning. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. Now, everybody look up here. That does not sound very romantic, does it? But you take that up with the Apostle Paul. I didn't write it. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Listen, here's what Jesus is or Paul is saying there. The God-given, everyone say God-given, God-given physical passion and desire in men and women is powerful. It's powerful. And since God created marriage for the expression of that passion and the expression of that desire, it can't be neglected. You cannot neglect the physical union, the sexual union that God designed to take place inside the covenant of a marriage relationship. You cannot neglect it. Well, just like you can't neglect the physical union, you can't neglect the spiritual union that needs to happen in a marriage relationship either. And that spiritual union is not necessarily described by Jesus in his words that we read from Matthew chapter 19, but when you go back to Genesis chapter 2, remember I told you that Jesus begins by directly quoting Genesis 2 and verse 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife or united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Since Jesus began by quoting those words, we can stay there. And the very next verse, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 25, gives us this picture of Adam and Eve that shows us what I believe to be the importance of the spiritual union in the relationship. Because after God speaks those words about marriage, he says in Genesis 2.25 about Adam and Eve, the man and his wife were naked and they felt no shame. Now, I want you to think about something with me for a moment. Remember, we're not in Matthew chapter 19 now. We're back in Genesis chapter 2. And so when those words were spoken in Genesis chapter 2, this was in the very beginning before sin entered into the world. That means in that moment when God spoke that word and when he said the man and his wife were naked and they felt no shame, that they were in complete union with God and they were at complete peace with God when those words were spoken. Now, That's Genesis chapter 2. Fast forward to Matthew chapter 19. Fast forward to 2019. We don't live in that kind of world today because in the very next chapter of the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, sin entered into the world as the result of their disobedience. And when sin entered into the world, it infected every single part of the world. But thankfully, thankfully, today we have the ability by the grace of God to live at peace with God once again through our faith in Christ, through our commitment to Christ. 
And so the pursuit of a growing union with God should be a part of every Christian marriage. Just like Adam and Eve were at peace with God and lived in union with God, when we live as Christian husbands and wives at peace with God together, we should pursue a deeper union with God in our marriage relationships. We should pursue spiritual growth with God. Can I tell you this morning one of the things that breaks my heart as a pastor? And this has been true in every single church that I have served. It breaks my heart at the number of women who come to church alone. Now, I understand sometimes that's because they're married to someone who is not a believer. That, that, that's the reality. I know that's what happens sometimes. You're married to someone who doesn't have a faith in God like you do. You're married to someone who doesn't have a faith in Christ, has not surrendered their life in complete faith and trust to Jesus and made him the Lord of their life. I understand that. But oftentimes, women come to church alone, Christian women come to church alone with husbands who claim to have faith in God, who claim to have faith in Christ, but for whatever reason, just don't have the time or the interest to go with their wives to church. And when that happens, you're missing out on this critical key component of spiritual growth in the relationship of husbands and wives, there's something missing. Now, I don't say that to beat up anybody who likes to stay home on Sunday better than they like to come to church, but I do say that to say this, husbands, you've got a greater responsibility to your wife than that. This is why it's so critical that husbands and wives both be believers. You know, the Bible tells us to not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and listen, especially to younger people here today who are not married, you listen really close to what I'm about to say. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14, and he says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Do not be joined together with unbelievers. And that verse can have a lot of application in our world today, but it has a strong application in the relationship of marriage. He goes on to say, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common, or what fellowship can light have with darkness? I can tell you as a pastor that this is a biblical truth that I have seen ignored for a variety of reasons over and over again through the years, and it almost always results in some level of heartbreak and disappointment. It's important to understand this. So marriage involves absolute commitment, it involves absolute unity, and then Jesus tells us with his words here in Matthew 19 that marriage involves absolute reverence. Write that down, absolute reverence. Because remember I said Jesus in his response to the Pharisees' question quoted Genesis 2.24 and then he added these words in verse 6. He said, therefore what God has joined together let man not separate. What's the message here? Well, the message is that God created marriage, that God ordained marriage, and so it must, everyone say must, must be treated as something holy. Marriage is more than just a living arrangement. Marriage is more than just a partnership. It is a unique union that was created and ordained and, or, and was blessed by God, and so it must be treated as something holy. I read the story this week about a couple that was about to celebrate their 48th wedding anniversary, and in their excitement, they said that to the clerk who was helping them in a store while they were shopping, and the clerk responded by saying, I can't think of anyone I would want to live with for 48 years. And the woman quickly replied, well, then don't get married until you do. And there's great truth to that because 
Marriage is for keeps. Marriage is for keeps. And that's the attitude and the approach that we need to take toward marriage. Unfortunately, it doesn't always work out that way. And because of that, divorce is a fact of life. So right down next to number two, these words, Jesus' word on divorce. We saw Jesus' word on marriage. Now we're going to see Jesus' word on divorce. As soon as Jesus gave his word on marriage, the Pharisees asked him this question in verse 7 of Matthew 19. Why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a divorce and send her away? Listen to me. Divorce is not something new. I told you that divorce was probably the preeminent social issue in Jesus' day. And divorce was, and that was because divorce was so common in Jesus' day. In fact, getting a divorce in Jesus' day was easier than it is today if you were a man. If you were a woman, it was next to impossible to get a divorce in Jesus' day. But if you were a man, it was very simple. All you had to do was write your wife something that was called a certificate of divorce and present it to him, or present it to her, rather. No lawyers, no judges, no alimony, just a piece of parchment that basically said, you're out of here. And that's how you got a divorce in Jesus' day. That was based on the words of Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 1, which is what the Pharisees were talking about when they said to Jesus, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a divorce and send her away? This is what Deuteronomy 24 and verse 1 says. <clears throat> if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent. Now, that's a word that you've got to hang on to right there, okay, that word indecent. Because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce. That's Deuteronomy 24.1. That sentence actually spreads all the way down to verse 4 of Deuteronomy 24, but we're going to stop right there, okay? So the bottom line is, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a, significant, uh, excuse me, a certificate of divorce. In Jewish culture, there were two schools of thought on what this idea of something indecent meant. One school said something indecent referred to adultery or sexual misbehavior of some kind. The word indecent in the Hebrew language of the Old Testament is the Hebrew word erva. And literally translated, it means nakedness or shame. One common application or interpretation is something improper, improper behavior. But the clear context for this was some kind of sexual sin, almost always a reference to adultery. That was one school of thought. The other school of thought said that something indecent referred to anything and everything a man might not like about his wife. Now, everybody look at me for a moment. Which school of thought do you think was most popular? It was the second one. And the bottom line is this. Deuteronomy 24.1 was misused repeatedly in Jesus' day, and the result was untold numbers of women were victims of their husbands' calloused and sinful hearts. And Jesus knew that. And so how, here's how Jesus replied, remember? He said, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, two things real quickly. First, did you notice that Jesus, he didn't just answer the Pharisees, but he corrected the Pharisees? And I say that because their question to him was, why did Moses command that a man give his wife a divorce? But Jesus' reply was, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. How many of you know there's a difference between a command and permitted? 
That's why it's so important for us to be conscientious students of the Bible because it's so easy for someone to twist the words of the Scripture in a way that suits you. But none of us have the ability or the authority to do that. The second thing I want to say is this. Listen to me really close. This is a difficult truth. This is a difficult truth. It's a part of the Bible, but in some ways it's difficult for me to say. And for many people, it's difficult to hear. That's especially true with so many people today who I know have been married and divorced and are now married again outside of the circumstances of what Jesus calls marital unfaithfulness. Those two words, marital unfaithfulness, that we read there in the NIV Bible come from a single word in the original language of the New Testament, the Greek language. It's the Greek word porneia. We get the English word pornography from the Greek word porneia. And the literal translation of the word porneia is illicit sexual intercourse. Illicit obviously means something that's not permitted. And so just so that we're all clear this morning as we talk about this, Jesus is, when he talks about marital unfaithfulness being a concession for divorce, what he's talking about is sexual intimacy that happens outside of the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman, between a husband and a wife. If a husband or a wife is involved in an intimate intimate sexual union outside of the covenant of marriage. And so based on Jesus' response there in verse 7, we would ask the question, what do these verses teach us? Just like we saw Jesus' word on marriage and his words taught us what Jesus believed about marriage, we see here what Jesus believes about divorce. There are two things. I want you to write these down. The first one is this. He's teaching, at the, he's teaching us that divorce is caused by sin. If you go back to Jesus' response to the Pharisees in the first part of verse 8, he said, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. I don't think that requires a lot of explanation. He's talking about sin because your hearts were hard. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23 is a great verse of Scripture. It says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. In other words, God says everything in our lives flows from the heart. Well, when your heart is hard, when it's calloused, what good is going to come from your heart? The first thing he's telling us is that divorce is caused by sin. The second thing that he's telling us, and I gave a hint of this just a moment ago, is that there are concessions for divorce. There are concessions for divorce. And he mentions one in our text very clearly. He says in Matthew 19 and verse 9 that marital unfaithfulness, and that, make no mistake, he's talking about adultery, when a husband or a wife steps out of the relationship with their spouse and is involved in a sexual relationship with somebody other than their spouse. That's what he's talking about. He says that's a concession for divorce. When that happens, the innocent spouse, and that may not even be the best way to say it, is free to remarry. Actually, Paul gives us another concession for divorce. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We don't have time to talk about it. Uh, I have the verse that I was going to read up here, but let me just tell you this. In that passage of Scripture, Paul says that when a believing spouse is married to an unbelieving spouse and the unbelieving spouse deserts the believing spouse, then there's a concession there for divorce and remarriage. And Paul makes an interesting statement as he writes about that in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 15. His conclusion on that is that God has called us to live in peace. 
And so there are concessions for divorce. That's what Jesus is teaching us. But I want you to think about something with me also. A concession is not a command. A concession is not a command. And as a pastor, I've certainly seen instances where there was an act of adultery in a marriage relationship, and it was heartbreaking. It was devastating. It was betrayal. But somehow, by the grace of God, that husband and wife were able to forgive and put their life back together and go on. There have been times I've seen it happen and the forgiveness was not able to happen. The restart was not able to happen. I just want you to know that a concession is not the same thing as a command. Now, I'm going to step out of our Matthew text for just a moment. I've got two more things that I want to tell you. But I want you to understand that I'm stepping out of Matthew chapter 19 right now. I have just given you an explanation of Matthew chapter 19 verses 1 through 9. I hope it was clear. I hope it was authoritative. And I hope it came across with some level of humility. But now I just want to talk to you about something different as we spend our last few minutes together. If you're taking notes, write down next to number three, God's word to, or Jesus' word rather, to the married Jesus' word to the married. We saw Jesus' word on marriage. We saw Jesus' word on divorce. Now I want to talk to you about Jesus' word to the married. If you're married this morning, I want to say two things to you. And the first one is this. Commit yourself every single day to be the man of God or the woman of God that you need to be in your marriage. To be a man of God or a woman of God in your marriage And here's what that looks like. I'll start with the men. That means, men, that you commit yourself every single day of your life to loving your wife with a sacrificial love that is so strong that you're willing to die for her and make sure that she knows that. And I say that because when the Apostle Paul writes about marriage in Ephesians chapter 5, he tells husbands to love their wives in the same way that Jesus loved the church. And what did Jesus do for the church? He went to the cross and he died. He laid down his life. He allowed his body to be broken and his blood to be shed for the church. And so, husbands, you love your wife with a sacrificial love every single day of your life. You be willing to die for her. You make it your first priority to see that you're doing everything you can to help her be the woman that God created her to be. Remember, she is your first earthly relational priority. Nothing else in this world comes before her. Women, wives, what that means for you is that you respect your husband and you allow him to be the spiritual leader in your family and your home, which, by the way, ladies, and I think that you would agree with me on this, is not hard to do when you know that your husband loves you with a sacrificial love that is so deep that he's willing to die for you. When you understand that he loves you that way, then you can obey the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22 when he says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. That word submit there is the Greek word hupotasso. It doesn't mean that you're a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. It doesn't mean that you're to be subservient to your husband. It was actually a military term in ancient days that described the way armies would line up for battle. All of them important, all of them equal, but there would be a leader in front guiding and directing And again, if you know that your husband loves you with a sacrificial love, that he's willing to die for you, that he's committed to doing anything that he can do to help you be everything that you can be, 
then you can respect your husband that way. So first commit yourself every single day to be a man of God or a woman of God in your marriage. Here's the second thing I wanna say to you if you're married. Then you take the word divorce right out of your vocabulary. You get rid of it. You rip it out of your personal dictionary and you say, this isn't going to be an option for me. This isn't going to be an option for me. Now, as I say that, I want you to understand, I'm, I'm talking about this in a kind of a general sense that marriages suffer sometimes because of what we've come to call in our culture irreconcilable differences. If you're in a marriage where there is something deeper than that happening, for example, if you're in a marriage where there's abuse happening, you're a wife that's being physically or verbally or mentally or sexually abused by your husband, you are not obligated to stay in that relationship. And I go back to the teaching of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 when he says God wants us to live in peace. And I go back to God's instruction to husbands to love their wives with a sacrificial love because there's nothing sacrificial or loving about that kind of behavior. You're not obligated to stay in that kind of a relationship. And don't let anyone, no matter how well-meaning or intended they might think that they are, to tell you or to try to guilt you into thinking that you're somehow obligated to stay in that relationship and take that kind of abuse because you're not, and any pastor who tells you that you are is not worth listening to. But I'm talking about this normal, if that's, that's probably not even the best word, but this circumstance where, where marriages break up oftentimes because people just can't get along. You take the word divorce right out of your vocabulary and you say, this is not going to be an option for me because that's not what God wants. Right down next to number four. Jesus' word to the divorce, and I'll have Brian come because we'll get ready to close. Jesus' word to the divorced. If you're someone this morning who has been divorced, whether you're remarried or not, I want to speak to you for a moment as we close. You know, the Bible has some strong things to say about divorce. You open up your Bible to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi is the very last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 16 literally says, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. But I want everyone to look at my face right now, especially those of you who have been divorced. God does not hate you. He does not hate you. That's not possible for God to hate you or me or anyone. I think most people know that, but I do run into people sometimes who feel like they're going to forever live under some kind of a spiritual black cloud because of, because of divorce. And honestly, I understand that on some level because of some of the strong things the Bible says about divorce, just like this passage of Scripture that we talked about this morning. I read the story of a pastor this past week who preached this powerful message on the life of Moses and focused on the fact that even though Moses had murdered someone, remember when Moses was still living in Egypt, he was a prince of Egypt still, and he knew that he was a Hebrew, and he saw an Egyptian mistreating a Hebrew slave, and he intervened, and he killed the Egyptian, and he buried his body in the sand. That's what led him to flee from Egypt in the beginning. He preached this sermon about Moses and said, even though Moses had murdered someone, God gave him a second chance and allowed him to come back and be a part of his service, and God used him in a mighty way. But then the pastor said after the service was over, he went back to his office, and he found a note on his desk that somebody 
who had been in the service, wrote to him, and it said, Dear Pastor, I wish I had murdered someone like Moses did instead of getting a divorce. At least then I would have gotten a second chance. And I know. I know that some people feel that way. Some Christians feel that way. I told you in the beginning that there are two temptations when it comes to teaching the Bible. One is to say more than what the Bible says, and the other one is to say less than what the Bible says. Some people do what I would call interpretive gymnastics to try to explain away Jesus' words that we just talked about in Matthew 19 about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And I understand that because I want you to listen to me really close. Do I believe, and I'm talking about me personally right now, do I believe that Jesus said what he did about divorce and remarriage in part because he was angry at the sinful hard-heartedness of the Pharisees? I absolutely do. I believe that contributed to Jesus' response. Jesus reserved his sharpest and harshest words for the religious leaders like the Pharisees. You see that all through the Gospels. Do I believe that Jesus said what he did about divorce and remarriage in part because he wanted to protect women? I absolutely believe that. Listen. How many times do you read the Gospels and you see Jesus having encounters with women, whether it was the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8 or the prostitute who broke through the crowd and anointed his feet with tears or broke open an alabaster jar of perfume and anointed his body before he was arrested and taken away to be crucified? How many times do you read about Jesus having an encounter with a woman who was living a sinful life? Well, there's a reason why. Probably most of those women had been married at one time, divorced unfairly by their husbands, and then left to the only thing that they could do to survive. And do you think that broke the heart of Jesus every time he encountered that over and over again? It absolutely did. And do I think that impacted his response to the Pharisees? I do. Do I believe that when Paul wrote those words about giving a concession to divorce to a believing spouse who was deserted by an unbelieving spouse and then added the words, God has called us to live in peace, that there's a greater application for those words in marriage, God has called us to live in peace? I absolutely do. But regardless of all of those beliefs... I cannot, in good conscience, explain away or dismiss Jesus' words on marriage and divorce and remarriage, no matter how painful they might be for some people to hear. But here's the good news. I don't have to. Because at the end of the day, God's grace is greater than our sin, regardless of what our sin might be. And just in case any of us have forgotten, we're all, every last one of us, a bunch of sinners. I've never been divorced, but I have certainly done my fair share of things that are outside of the will of God. There were five months back in 2012 where I wasn't able to be the spiritual leader of this church because I was sick and I was going through treatment for cancer and I was trying to recover from that treatment. When I returned five months later to work, it was such a celebration. The first week I got back, I got a letter in the mail from somebody who signed it just with the name John who told me that God had given me cancer as a punishment for my sin. And then he went so far as to tell me what my particular sin was. He told me that God had given me cancer as a punishment for my sin of taking a paycheck for preaching. Well, let me tell you two things about that, and excuse my language. 
That is the stupidest thing I have ever heard or read in my life. That's not how God operates. That's not how God operates. And the second thing is this. If God were going to punish me for my sin, I've done a whole lot worse things than making it possible for this church to deposit a check into my bank account every Friday morning. How about you? Paul writes in Romans chapter 5 and verse 20, and he says, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, and he said in chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, do you not know that the wicked will not, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he wrote these words, and that is what some of you, say it with me, were, were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God's grace is greater than our sin, whatever that sin might be. And so let's close like this. Let's be a church that celebrates the grace of God, not because we understand it gives us a license to sin, because God's grace does not give us a license to sin, but because God's grace covers all of our sin whatever it might be. In fact, let's just do something different as we close. Just sing this with me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Somebody say amen to that. You know what? I've gone a little bit over time. We're not going to even sing another song. I'm going to ask you to pray with me this morning. If you're serving communion, I'm going to ask you to be dismissed right now to prepare for that. And I'm going to bow and we're going to pray for our communion this morning. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for your grace. And thank you that it's greater than our sin. Forgive us for the times when we have made it seem like some sins were worse than others. And forgive us at times for making life difficult for people when they have gone through difficult, difficult periods of their life. Cover us with your grace. Remind us of the power of your grace as we take communion together right now. As we remember through emblems, pieces of bread and cups of juice, that Jesus died for our sin, that he traded his position of glory in heaven for a cruel Roman cross to be suspended between heaven and earth in agony because he loves us so deeply and he wanted to give us an opportunity to have peace with you. 
when the trays pass down each row, we invite everyone here who is a believer to take a piece of bread and a cup of juice and as they partake, to remember the price of your grace that is greater than our sin. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.